This is the EWN Radio Network. Welcome to On the Record with your host, Ashram Lux Lucis. of On the Record. I am your host, Astrum Lux Lucis, and this week's esteemed guest has won four Emmy Awards, two Golden Globes, the People's Choice, BAFTA, Writers Guild Award, Parents' Choice, and TV Land Legends Award for writing and producing Cheers, The Jeffersons, Facts of Life, Family Ties, and Who's the Boss, and for creating the acclaimed Disney animated Saturday morning TV series and feature film, Teacher's Pet. A 2011 Tony nominee for Sister Act, she's also written Princesses and Book and Lyrics for Mosaic and Jailbirds on Broadway. Other stage includes Our Place and Instaplay, L.A.'s original and longest-running improvised musical comedy. An Indie Award winner and Ovation nominee for Hello, My Baby, she currently teaches writing at Stanford and UC Santa Barbara and also directs youth theater. Please welcome Sherry Steinkellner. Hello, Astrum. Hello, Sherry. I am so glad to have you on the show. I just like like reading your your list of awards there. I was like, I watched all those shows as a kid. Like, this is so cool. Like, that's awesome. You know, I'm talking yeah, to the person to... who wrote that stuff. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, you get to do all that, and then they give you a statue to take home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so tell me, how did you get started in this whole field? Were you a little girl, and when I grow up, I want to be a screenwriter and write for TV and, and, and stage? And like, How did that all come about? You know, I never knew that that was an option. But it's interesting. I was listening to a number of your um, interviews with many of my friends, and the pattern that I saw developing was looking back at when you're a little girl and when you're a little kid and what you wanted to do then, how – how we kind of roll back to it inevitably in life, if we're lucky. Um, and I, I was just thinking a lot about what, what did I do when I was a little kid that planted the seeds for all the things that I love to do now. And I remember the two biggest things when I was a little girl were listening to my parents' um, original Broadway cast albums, listening to albums, laying on my on my tummy, in front of my record player, on the shag carpet, wall-to-wall. I think it was um, either Harvest Gold or Avocado Green. (laughs) And I had one of those GE um, record players that um, could fold into a suitcase, and then you would open it up and play play the platters. With the peel-off speakers on the side. (laughs) Well, no, that's a big upgrade. Oh, oh, that's the upgraded model. Excuse me. Yeah, because I was listening in mono. Um, Uh. (laughs) But but my parents had, you know, they had Hello, Dolly and Finian's Rainbow and Fiddler on the Roof, all that stuff. Funny Girl, I remember my mom loved Streisand. And... All of those worlds that I couldn't see but just could hear sounded so good to me. And it, it just it sounded like that was the happy place where people sing together in harmony. And um, so 
that seed was planted back there, but I didn't know it was ever an option to be part of that. I thought you could only listen to it. And then the other thing I did obsessively when I was a kid is I read, I read, 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 but I particularly remember reading the blue biographies of little weird girls who grew up to be important enough to have a book written about them, like um, (laughs) Sacagawea Bird Girl or Amelia Earhart I what was, uh, like I think it was Amelia Earhart Kansas girl for some reason they didn't say air, airplane girl but um but looking <laughs> back I can sort of see why Amelia Earhart little lost girl um but I remember loving to read the stories of women when they were girls and um I I, I guess those are early signs of someone who's going to grow up to be a writer. I just didn't find it out until late in my 20s. Um, uh, I was an English major in college. I thought I was going to go to college and be a theater major because theater, theater, theater. But my dad told me, don't major in theater because you're already going to do that anyway. Major in something that you can only do at college. So (laughs) (laughs) that was pretty good, right? Um, So... Um, so I majored in, in literature and found that I loved, loved, loved words. And then, but I didn't know that words liked me. did know was that I got a lot of love as an actress and I got hired. Uh, everything I did, I don't want to say everything, I failed a lot, but um, I got like I went to an open call at the Pantages Theater for Greece, the national tour of Greece, like six weeks out of college. And there were hundreds of people and who danced better and sang better than I do and acted better than I do. But for some reason they said, do you want to go on the road with us and play Frenchie? So a lot things like that kept stacking up and I kept getting work and making a living. And so I thought that's what I was supposed to do is be an actress and then I came back from that same national tour and um, was in an improv group called The Groundlings, which you've spoken about with Lynn Stewart and Tracy Newman and maybe others. And um, I met, he was my boyfriend then, he's my husband now and has been since 82, um, Bill Steinkellner, who wanted to be, he, he wanted to write. And he was writing. He was writing constantly. And I really admired that. And I really respected it. And I found that when I met new people, I wanted to talk about his job more than my job. And one, we started writing together. Interestingly, I, I didn't know I could write, but I could type. I was a really fast <laughs> typist. I took it in the seventh grade. In, like back when they would put a box over your hands and you just had to touch type for speed and accuracy. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I would type his scripts up. And one day I handed a script back to him. It was a spec script that he had written. I don't know if it was a love boat or a love boat and Shirley or something. But anyways, I typed it for him and I handed it back and he looked at it and he started like seeing red. He got really ticked off. And 
I couldn't understand why. I, you know, I'd corrected a few grammatical errors and cleaned up a few things, but apparently along the way I'd kind of really rewritten it. Oh, and wow. I didn't, I, like, it just, I didn't feel like I was doing that much, but I was, and it was really rude, and I will never do that again, maybe. Um, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but we had a huge fight, like when, maybe one of the biggest fights of our lives, because I was just trying to help him, and he didn't want that kind of help. <laughs> but after the dust settled, and we decided we still wanted to stay together, um, we took a look at it and went, you know what? Maybe there's something here. So hold that. Stepping forward just a couple of months, maybe several months later, all of our friends, we're trying to craft a living in L.A. I'm doing okay with the commercials and the theater and little TV appearances and things like that. He is trying hard to get a break as a writer, and he is teaching improv at the Groundlings and off premises, too, privately. And the way Billy teaches improv and still does to this very day, he teaches scenario. And so we don't just make scenes and jokes. We make plays when we improvise in his class. And he had this idea to improvise um, a long form that would go over several weeks. We'd, we'd have characters and then improvise in these characters over several weeks version of our town so it would so the the it would look and sound kind of like our town thornton wilder um grover's corners at the turn of the last century but it would be set in la in the mid-1980s because that's when it was and that's where hmm. we were and i said that's a really good idea are you sure you want to improvise it do you maybe want to write it and he said i wouldn't know where to begin and i said well you begin with our town and maybe we could do it together just for fun so we wrote this version of our town called our place and as we went through draft after draft it started out like mad libs and then it started becoming its own thing and growing into a play that had some of the, I guess I want to say auspices of our town, it had like a stage manager who narrates and four chairs and two ladders. It was done in a blank, you know, um, on a blank stage, an empty stage and so forth. But it became really about why we lived in L.A. and how L.A. was our version of a small town and what life was like. It, it really seriously is a time capsule of that time and that place. And um, one day we were improvising. We were doing a little midnight improv show in East L.A. at a coffee house named the Deja Vu, which we remember fondly because one night the police, like, locked us in because there was an armed robbery in the liquor store adjacent. Oh, so we were in a really – we were in that part of town. Yeah. But the guy, the guy who – ran the Deja Vu, had acquired a theater two, two doors up the street um, in East L.A. Uh, called, he was going to call it the Fifth Estate, and he needed a show to open it. And our place, the play that we had written, was just a script. It was an exercise that we had done. It was sitting in a drawer. And he said, do you have any plays? And, we, and I said, Billy says no, and I say yes. 
And he said, can they be ready in two weeks? And Billy says, no. And I say, yes. <laughs> and we gathered all of our groundling friends and our next-door neighbor, Xander Berkeley, directed, directed it. And just, we hey, kids, Smitty has a barn. Let's put on a show. And we literally pulled it together with friends in in that space of time, in two weeks, and put it on. And it ended up running and running and running. It moved down to Melrose. It ran for months. And it became uh, part of the L.A. Olympics arts time. And it was just, it got great reviews, and we won awards, and it was all really big. This is a really long way to dive back to how I became a writer. (laughs) Because I was also the publicist for it. We were the box office, all that. And I was also playing the lead in it, the role that was the equivalent of the Emily Webb role. Wow. And one night I was stand I was on stage doing a scene and um I had this kind of out of body moment where I suddenly realized in this crystalline kind of instant that I got ha- a happier buzz when the audience laughed at or responded to a line that I had thought of and another character said then I did when they laughed at something that I said but hadn't thought of. And I realized, oh, I need to be the thinker, not the sayer. Oh, wow. That was, I was, um, somewhere in my 20s, I completely shifted and all the puzzle pieces fell into place. And I realized, oh, I see why I don't like taking bows at the end of the show and starring in musicals and all that, which I was doing, all that kind of stuff. I want to be the person who thinks of it, not the person who says it out. And that was that was that. Wow, that was a wow, really that's... long way to say that. Sorry. No, we're, no, that was great. That was a great story because it's you know most people going into the entertainment industry they want the spotlight. You know they and and usually the back end is like the afterthought of oh well I've given it all I can obviously I'm not going to make it as an actor I'm going to go into the back end side of it where you you were already doing that and you know enjoying that and then all of a sudden you realized oh no I this I really like this part better so that's it's like a total twist on the normal you know I want to be a star oh, that's interesting I realized I the interesting thing was I knew there was something wrong with me as an actress <laughs> if I could be <laughs> if I could be taking the last bow at the time there weren't that many um, girls who could convincingly land a joke, um, play Jewish, and sing through the score of Funny Girl. So they began doing Funny Girl in all the dinner theaters in Orange County and, and surrounding environs, and I was the, the go-to Fanny Bryce. And um, that's what I did in my 20s. I just I, I sang Streisand for my mother. Um, <laughs> not nearly like nothing like Streisand, but I was loud and and I could, you know, get the score out eight shows a week to some degree. Um, but I realized he, I'm taking this last bow and all I want to do is be home in my pajamas. I don't want to be taking the bow. Everybody else loves it. And I, I just, that didn't feel right to me. And I knew I was a bad fit for that. Wow. So that's how that went. We'll be right back. 
I'm looking for a certain kind of woman, and I think you know her. She's an entrepreneur that is highly connected, successful, significant in her own industry, and considered the go-to woman in her community. She's received so much from so many women in business, she's ready to give back to others on their journey, lifting as she climbs. Hi, this is Sandra Yancey, and I'm the founder and CEO of eWomen Network. I'm looking to connect with the woman I've just described who lives in your community so that we might have a conversation about how eWomen Network's proven success system can provide her a platform to elevate her success and ability to support women in business. Our international community of managing directors are influencing the speed of success for women in business around the world. If that sounds like something that you want to be part of or know someone we should talk with, send an email to managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. That's managingdirector at eWomenNetwork.com. And let's start the conversation. And we're back on the record. Were you talking with other actor friends about this? And, you know, what were they thinking? They were thinking you were nuts or... No, I was too, I don't know that I had even really talked to myself about it. It was mm. just a weird feeling all the time. I want to get in my Honda Civic, the the kind that looked like it, um, like a scuba mask in the back. <laughs> I just want to get in my Civic and drive home as fast as possible. I just thought there was something wrong with me. Yeah. And there was just something wrong with the fit. Wow. Wow. So then, so you, you know, now you've made the the choice. I'm going to do the writing end. I like doing that more. What things did you do to get more involved with that? Was like cheers your next big thing or did you have some little things along the way and how did that develop? Um, it took a while. It should take a while. It needs to take a while. It's like, you, you know, you're a raw egg at first, and you need to cook to some degree. <laughs> um, <laughs> or else it's just, you know, like just potential poisoning. <laughs> um, for me, I'm going to say that for me. Some people may hit it out of the park the first time, but I needed to cook. Um, we began writing spec scripts together, Billy and I did. And... um we, what was interesting is back then, there was, for writers, there was a ladder, and you could actually, I could figure out what it was and figure out how to put our foot on the first rung and climb it. Um, it wasn't easy to get to the ladder or to get to the first rung, but we just started writing and writing and writing and exposing the material um, in Back then, it was in Equity Waiver Theater, and um, there were we had an, a early, young, brand new agents who would help us um, get material seen. And as Tracy mentioned in her talk, Tracy Newman, um, being part of the Groundlings was a huge help because uh, for us, Don Siegel and Jerry Persigian. Uh, who had been fellow ground uh, Don Siegel had been a fellow groundling. Um, they were producing the Jeffersons. Oh, and also um, mm. Rob Dames and Bob Frazier 
were who were also groundling people in groundlings classes with us back then um were producing uh benson so it's sort of like microwave popcorn. The you wait a while, then the first kernel pops, then more kernels start popping, and pretty soon lots of <laughs> popping is happening. That was the moment when kernels started popping. And as people got work, uh, they and, and, and Rose, you know, climbed that ladder, they were able to at least introduce the un- the unpopped kernels who who were going to be popping <laughs> to, to that world. And so first Robin and Bob brought us in and gave us a crack on Benson, and that was wonderful. And then Don and Jerry actually gave us a great staff position and one of the most fun jobs of our television career, which was writing on the last season of The Jeffersons. Um, it was great, and we had so much fun, and we learned so much. And we wrote a ton and moved from that into some of the other shows that you mentioned. But on the Jeffersons in its last season, another couple of writers who were new to us because they hadn't been groundlings were David Lee and Peter Casey. And after the Jeffersons um, wrapped, they moved over to work on Cheers. And one of the reasons they got over to Cheers was because they were alumna Alumni, alumnos of the <laughs> alumni of the um, same college that Glenn and Les Charles, who created Cheers, had gone uh. to. I think they were all Redlands grads. And so, the point of this overly long story is that <laughs> the whole "it's who you know" thing. But it doesn't matter how you know them. If there's some sense of kinship, of family, of trust, of, oh, you must be good because you went to my college or you went to my improv school, um, you got a shot. David and Peter had gone over to Cheers, which was an unlikely leap from the Jeffersons because they're two very different styles. But, um, but they knew our work, they trusted us, and they invited us to come over and try writing a sample, uh, try pitching scripts to do a freelance episode. And from there, I can't say it was a straight line. There were, it was a straight-ish line with, you know, just like, it was like a straight-ish road with a lot of speed bumps along the way to keep you going slow on it. (laughs) But in November of 1986, we had been fired from one job, lost another. I was 10 days pregnant but didn't know but didn't know it yet. We had just moved into our very first house and we didn't know how we were going to pay the mortgage. And I didn't know why I was, why the house was making me sick. I oh, no. this morning sickness and, and lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, um, and we got a call and we were invited to come in at the low entry level writing position on cheers. And that was the turn of all turns. It was, the best of the best. Um, and we, then that was a whole story of its own, but only if you want it. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm curious because as you're speaking, you're, you're very descriptive and you've kind of got like this little quick wit thing and you like add just these little descriptions that just make a, a regular sentence into an extraordinary sentence. And I'm finding that with, 
like screenplay or screenwriters in, in general, that seems to be like a trait. Like you've got to be, and and it seems to tie back to improv. Now I'm I'm thinking I need to get involved with improv in some way. I don't know. It seems like a personal mean? development tool. But so I'm curious as to kind of what goes on in your mind, or what skills or techniques or or tricks, trades, whatever have you sort of maybe fallen back on or acquired over the years that enable you to just be like very descriptive, but like at ease with it. Like it doesn't seem like you're thinking about, then there was a speed bump in the road. It was just like that just flowed right out of your brain. You know. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's a great question, Astrum. I'm going to, I'm going to riff on this. Okay. Okay. And, Go for and it. part of, part of the message is the, the medium is part of the message because I don't know what I'm going to say. And I'm not going to be afraid to see, to find out what it turns out to be. (laughs) And that's, that's the beauty of improv. I recommend improv, good improv to anyone. And when I say good improv, I mean the kind that allows you to be fearless. Because these days there are many improv troops that are product oriented, where you're there because you want to get into the main stage show and get seen for SNL and, you know, or, or make your own broad city or whatever. And that's product oriented. Mm. And when you're product oriented and, and, you know, and it's, it's a pyramid structure like that so that there's a whole bunch of people on the bottom and only a couple on the top, it's hard to be fearless. it's easy to want to hedge your bets and and get it right and be really good and prove it to the world. And that's all scary-making stuff. So the Mm. first thing I'm going to offer is find a place that allows you to be fearless. I think that's hugely important. Um, Viola Spolin, who wrote the book on improv, who started the Compass Players, and, oh, God, I mean, you go back in history and she's just it. Uh, and that became second, Compass Players became Second City. She has a quote that I adore where she says, fun erases fear. And mm. I think and hope that that is true. Um, so, the, so, A, find a place where you can have fun and be fearless um, is thing one. That's, God, now I'm going to dial back to the beginning of this thought. <laughs> Um, I love morning pages as a writing practice. Julia Cameron talks about, um, morning pages. She called them morning pages in the, in, in the artist's way. And it's writing three pages every morning, straight out of sleep, straight out of dreams. You write three pages. And in all of my classes, I, I, I invite my students to do that as a daily practice, only if they want an A from me. Um, <laughs> um, it, you know, if, if, if they're fine with a B or a C, they don't have to do their morning pages. I don't read their morning pages. I don't, they don't have to read their morning pages. They just have to flip a notebook and show me that they wrote them because I believe in the process, in the writing mm-hmm. practice, in the improv practice, in the uh, getting just so comfortable with your own expression and and so unafraid of it um natalie goldberg is another amazing writing teacher who's written like 30 books on how to how to look at your own mind and and look at the world through your own lens and notice stuff um 
so when you talk about the speed bumps or whatever details we may add in in expression, it, it comes from noticing things and kind of logging them, making connections, and then feeling comfy enough to put them out there, hoping that they will be received and also knowing very well that sometimes they won't be and people will look at you and go, what are you talking about? (laughs) Or the modern version of that, semi-modern, really or seriously or (laughs) (laughs) S-L-Y. And you just kind of shrug and go, okay, message not received, oh well. (laughs) Um, Anyways, does that answer sort of come close to an answer? Yeah, yeah, just being observant. And I think probably a lot occurs in the morning pages. And I know I read um, her book many moons ago, probably 2004-ish, give or take. Um, And ironically, I'm a songwriter, but I like getting me to sit down to write anything – other than a song, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, I don't have time for that. And you know, I'm I'm hearing that that's probably a good thing that I should start doing, looking into. I I, I always feel like I'm just going to sit there and stare at a blank page for like a half hour because my mind's going to be going, oh, you got to go do that, and you got to do this, and oh, don't forget that. So maybe I just start off every morning writing a to-do list. <laughs> every page that, exactly. <laughs> That's well. The key is you don't get to stare. She the the rule of it is you just got to keep that pen scratching or the. I know you're not supposed to do it with your keyboard, but I do it on my, on my MacBook. Um, <laughs> but you just keep that train of thought going. I got to do this. I got to go that. And then, basically, what the idea of morning pages is you can only do that for so long. Like the to do list will mm-hmm. peter out on page two, and then you're going to dig into something that wants more of your attention. And it might be the song. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, morning pages. Morning pages and improv. There we go. I got two two homework assignments. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. On Facebook, there's a wonderful group called the Applied Improvisation Network. And I think it's a, like, you have to apply to join it or something like that. But they're all over the world. And it's it's really cool. It's I, I'm sure there's lots of people who do improv for performance, but they're taking it way beyond that, and so it's really cool. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So while you were in the beginning phases, um, as you were starting to, just before you got to. The cheers level. Were you? What were you doing for income at that time? Were you making money as a writer? Were you still having to do acting and um, both? I did a lot of commercials. Okay. Um, yeah. Billy was teaching improv, and then we started getting these little weird writing gigs. Like um, I remember there was one that we heard about through other people at the Groundlings and glommed onto, um, which was writing these short stories that were going to be recorded for children. So writing children's stories. Mm. Um, we later learned, I think that that was a money laundering operation, but, um, <laughs> but it paid. 
paid thirty five bucks a story, and so that meant I, I think our rent was probably like two hundred and seventy dollars. So do the math. Um, yeah. We had friends who were writing porn, oh, um, and and that was paying like a hundred and fifty bucks. So that and it seemed wow. really easy. Yeah, I mean, there's really, is there any words in porn? I mean, it's like, hey, baby, yeah, let's do it, okay. <laughs> moaning, I mean, moaning, over and over really... again, more moaning. <laughs> oh, Mr. Hardwick. <laughs> <laughs> um, but um, let's see, what else? I'm trying to think what else we were doing to cobble it. Oh, I know. There were game shows. I was like a professional game show person. Um uh, I was on Name That Tune, but then later they would hire me to come in and be a contestant on game show pilots. Oh, wow. Um, let's see, the gong show and the dating game. If you were in the union, you could get paid to do those. I, I mean, it was really cobbling it together, 35 100 $150 at a time. Wow. Mm-hmm. And it was wow. all practice, and it was all interesting. I was a page at NBC. I was a tour guide at Universal Studios. Um, oh, I know. We had written, uh, Billy and I had written a spec script for a show called Taxi. Oh, wow. was roundly rejected at Taxi, and by all the people, all, all the uh, MTM was the production company, Mary Tyler Moore's production company. It, it got no um, action there. But a Canadian... TV producer named Jack Humphreys um, bought the story that we had written and turned it into an episode of his Canadian TV show uh, called Hanging In, which was about a bunch of kids hanging out at a teen center. And that was so interesting and so fun. And we developed a great relationship with him and wrote several episodes of Hanging In for the Canadian Broadcasting Company. So it was just wherever it came up, we, we would say yes. Hmm. Yeah, and that's important to um, a lady who I interviewed, Starla Fortunato, uh, an amazing photographer out in L.A. Um, I, I, when I met with her because my in-laws are in the L.A. area, so I'm out there quite often and met with for her for lunch. And she's like, when Hollywood calls, you have to be ready and you have to say yes. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, maybe I need to move here. I don't know. <laughs> I need to do improv and morning pages, and now I need to think about moving to L.A. I don't know. Um, it's, it's it's all ha- – where are you, Astrum? I'm in Austin. Where do you live? Austin, Texas. Oh, no, you can do all this in Austin. You don't need to move here. Yeah, that's good because I don't like the traffic there. <laughs> there. There is more traffic, and and in Austin you have some – you have some really interesting ice cream stores. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Lots of interesting things, yes. Um, talk a little bit about, so how did you get in, then segue into musicals and also um, directing? And Well, you, I guess you produced a musical, your Hello, My Baby. And then did you also direct that? And how does that uh, all that, formulate? It's, it's going all the way musicals back to our fascinate life. me. It's I am, just like... I, like life, can you imagine like if life was a musical, we're all walking along and all of a sudden, and today we're going to do this, you know, <laughs> it's like, I know. Fascinating it's me. so, it's so, it's so artificial and delightful. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, I think it's that thing, and I actually read this and I can't find the, the um, issue of Oprah magazine, but there was a small piece in an issue of Oprah 
if any of your listeners know where it was, um, that said that thing that you did when you were eight years old is the key to is a key to what you should be doing in life. The mm. thing that you did before you knew what you were good at or what you got A's at or what you were supposed to do or all the way back to the thing that you did. And that was, you know, laying on my belly on the shag carpet listening to Hello, Dolly. Um, <laughs> so uh, I don't know. Maybe it was for my mother's approval. Um, but it just... How did we get how did we get to musicals? Well, <laughs> cheers, then more TV, and at the same time more children. And there came a moment in 1995, I want to say, when I said I need to raise our children. I need to not be raising other people's children on a soundstage, on a TV, <laughs> on a, in a TV. Um, environment. I need to be raising my own children, picking them up after school and all that goes, driving on field trips, all that goes with that. And so 20 years ago now, we moved to Santa Barbara, which was close enough that we could be there on call, but far enough that we couldn't be there every day. And we actually just like, it was sort of TV production, Harry Curie. I mean, we really... (laughs) The phone did not ring. We were told it would not ring, and it was true. It did not ring. We were absolutely, I don't know if it was, you know, you're fired or you can't fire us, we quit. But we were absolutely forgotten. (laughs) And it was really, really interesting. But maybe people just thought we wanted to be, and we sort of did, and I did that thing. I had one, let's see, Kit was going into fifth grade. Teddy was going into second, and Emma was a baby, and I walked them to school, picked up after school, drove on every field trip, read, you know, did reading group in classes, all that stuff. Immersion, full immersion in momminess, Mm. Um, and loved it. It was fantastic. Um, Now they're all grown up, so I got to, now I got to, now I got to work again. Um, (laughs) But, um... So a couple of things happened. Um, one thing that happened on the professional side was we got a call from a man named Roy Price, who then was um, a development, he was doing development at Disney on the TV side of things. And he said, do you want to write a um, a children's show, a Saturday morning children's show? And that was right in the sweet spot because we had a fifth grader, a, a second grader and a baby. And it was like, oh my God, this will be, our kids will love this. We can do this as a family project almost. Mm. Uh, you know, a Disney cartoon, Disney perks, a green card. That gets you into Disneyland for free. It's like going to the park. <laughs> yeah. It's fantastic. Um, so we said, we just like, and he says, well, it's going to be a huge pay cut from what you're used to. And we said, that's okay. We just want to go to Disneyland with our family for free. <laughs> exactly. Um, and, um, and, he, and, and the other thing that we needed to know was, do you need us there on premises in Burbank? And he said, maybe once a week. And that was good enough for us. We could come in, one, drive in from Santa Barbara once a week, which is like a you know hour and a half, two-hour drive. And the rest of the time, we could work at home and pick up our kids from school. It was gorgeous. It wasn't a lot of money, but the Emmys are just as shiny. 
And <laughs> it was a lot of fun. And we had just the best, best, best time writing this little seen, much loved TV show called Teacher's Pet. And Nathan Lane, big Broadway star, was, and also an amazing voice actor, an actor, period, was the um, voice of a little blue dog who wanted to go to school with his fourth grade boy. And, um, and, the, and the fourth grade boy's and dog's mom was the teacher of the fourth grade. So that's where the name teacher's pet comes from. Um, anyways, because Nathan Lane was the star of it, we would put songs in it and he would sing them and it would be awesome. And then because Disney was, um, really anticipating, it was a very well-received, um, script and show. And they were anticipating that it would do well as a movie. So they allowed us to make a movie of it. And we filled it with songs and filled it with our favorite actors. Kelsey Grammer played a mad scientist and all kinds of, Megan Mullally was in it. Just all kinds of people who we knew were musical theater people we mm. threw into into the mix. Um, and it was great. Um, it, and it did terrible. It was like probably the worst opening any Disney movies ever had. It got great <laughs> reviews. But... Um, but nobody went and saw it, and oh well. Um, along the way, Disney realized we could write musicals, that we knew how to write what some people call the gazintas and gazatas, which is how to get from scene into song, how it goes into the song, and how you come out of the song, which is kind mm. of a, it's kind of an art and kind of a craft. Yeah, for sure. And um, And we learned... And so some, by that really wiggly road, not so many speed bumps, but lots of twists and turns, um, <laughs> we um, we ended up writing uh, a couple of musicals. One of them was for Disney, um, Under Their Umbrella, and that was Sister Act, because Sister Act had been in the Disney library. It, it was a Buena Vista film, which is under the Disney umbrella. Oh, Okay. And so we wrote Sister Act. We wrote another musical with um, David Zippel and Matthew Wilder, who had written the score to Mulan. Disney introduced us to them. And we wrote a stage musical called Princesses with them. Uh, Sister Act we wrote with Disney god Alan Menken and Glenn Slater. Um, and so, so we're writing these musicals for big-time musicals. And now... Our children are in high school and junior high school. Now they've, you know, they've they've progressed up the ladder, up the ages, <laughs> and maybe even maybe Emma was still in elementary school, and um, so now we're into the two thousands, and um, they some of their schools do musicals and other of their schools don't. And mommy loves a good high school musical and really <laughs> felt that her children needed to have that experience <laughs> and it had to be a great experience. And if they weren't able to get it anywhere else, then we were just going to have to make it. So while we were making Broadway musicals, I was also directing local junior high school and youth theater productions here. Oh, wow. Okay. So that happened. And the interesting toggle of that of being so local 
and so global was really messed with my head, but it was also, but in a good way. Um, I loved doing it on the local level. I loved seeing how kids could succeed and how audiences could respond to young actors and actresses. And so I directed a production when our youngest baby, Emma, was 14 years old. So that's uh, seven years ago now. I directed a, a, a junior high school production of Anything Goes. And by then I directed lots and lots of high school and junior high and elementary school musicals. But this one was really interesting. It was special because the kids had never heard of Anything Goes. They had never heard of Cole Porter. The other junior high was doing Shrek, and that sounded a lot better to them. They'd heard of that. (laughs) But I said, no, you guys, this is classic. You need to know your Cole Porter. And by the time they dug into it, and I'm, this is, I will absolutely swear by this. The musicals that you do when you're in, when you're a kid, are with you forever. If you ask me to do Fiddler on the Roof right now, I can do every breath of it for you. Wow! Um, and I wanted to feed our kids and future kids great musicals that would and great music that would be with them forever. And so after I finished directing Anything Goes, I started looking at the songs that um, in the public domain, the great American songbook, songs that were written before 1923. And I was flabbergasted at the music that existed like Shakespeare or Gilbert and Sullivan that, that's in the public domain that exists for us to use in whatever way we see fit without having to license it and work with estates and heirs and artists. This material is just there to, to be sung. And the songbook blew my mind. And I wanted to fashion a musical around this great American songbook and these great, great songs that young kids young actors and audiences of all ages could just have the best time with and that could sing across generations. I wanted my kids to know these songs by heart for the rest of their lives so that their kids and their grandkids would know them. And a lot of these songs were, are on the tipping point being so forgotten because there's nobody alive who who remembers them hmm. firsthand. And so we had to make a new firsthand in order for the songs to get a new life. Um, and by the way, there's a lot of people who want to do this at this moment in time, a hundred years later. Um, Downton Abbey, Boardwalk Empire, mm-hmm. um, are, uh, Woody Allen, um, uh, in, in several of his movies are revisiting a hundred years ago and especially the music of a hundred years ago. New musical opening up Shuffle Along is going to be doing the same thing with um, Shelton Brooks and U.B. Blake's music. So I wrote this musical and I fell in love with it. And um, I just, it's, 
it's it really is my my late life baby um and, <laughs> and, and my real baby still this to be true <laughs> but i just it makes me happy every time i hear the songs every time i see it um i'm going to oregon this week and colorado next week and washington the week after to because different productions of it are going up and i love the baby yeah yeah what's your favorite song that you worked into the musical oh if you have one <laughs> i have several oh man oh thank you I, I i have several too i love taking um i'm always chasing rainbows which is in its original version a song about somebody who has dreams but can't make them come true mm. And it's the I want song in Hello, My Baby. It's the young girl early in the first act sits on her fire escape and sings about her wishes and dreams. Unbeknownst to her, she is um, overheard, the boy who will be her love interest, who tells her not to chase rainbows but to paint them. And so we take that old song about dreaming and turn it into a new idea about Making dreams come true. I love that one. Um, I love Jada because it takes a little tiny ditty and blows it up into a big dance off, and it's all just playing with all different styles of music. Uh, those are a couple that come to mind.
my streetcar, and well, gee, I know it's none of my beeswax, but you say you're always chasing rainbows and watching little birdies passing by. No, I said clouds, but... Oh, but you don't seem like all those silly girls who dream and can't seem to keep their heads out of the sky. Look here now, I don't see how... I don't see you chasing after rainbows. I see you painting them in colors bright and bold. Painting rainbows? Yellow, orange, crimson, blue, and violet. Your indigo's a wonder to behold. This metaphor's over. Not quite yet. We're gonna paint that rainbow. Wait, when did we become a we? And at the end we'll find our pot of... No, don't say it. My ride. Finish that music by morning and meet me at Ethel Burt Coots Music Publishers, 28th and Broadway, Tin Pan Alley. In your dreams. And it's gold and McKee. I'm gonna look and find the sunshine where others look and find the rain. Maybe I'll make a At least I'll make a gain Believe me I'm gonna paint that rainbow This is like the music of my grandmother's era kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like played bass fiddle and was in, you know, she used to tell me stories about running around Philadelphia when she was young, playing her bass fiddle in the different bands and stuff. And I'm just thinking, wow, you were so cool. Um, Oh, that is so, well, that's interesting because it was in the music world where women had a chance to play in a man's game. mm Mm-hmm. And that's the story of Hello, My Baby. In fact, um, another song that I really love, um, that has that serves a great purpose in the show is a good man is hard to find, because during the course of that song, the female lead decides to become that good man so that she can work in a man's world, which goes back to Shakespeare and the old Yiddish tr- theater trouser comedies and all that. Yeah. So yeah. So it's fun to take these songs and listen to these lyrics and repurpose them so that they tell the story. Mm-hmm. Uh, play the good man is hard to find. Yeah, it, it's interesting how, like you were talking about at the beginning of um, taking, being able to go from you're just in dialogue and now you're moving, you're breaking out into the song and then coming back into the dialogue. Mm-hmm. Like that's mm-hmm. just like so fascinating. And when you hit that just right... It's almost like, yeah, that's like so natural. Like I'm just walking along and now I'm breaking in the song and, you know, it. and that skill, like, how did you develop that skill? Um, thank you. Growing up with it, listening to those albums, mm-hmm. it just, and, and it's true because you can't, it's almost like a language where if you acquire it early, that window, you know, when mm-hmm. that when that language learning window is open in your brain, mm-hmm. it's just it's much more native 
than if you try and learn it late. Because Billy, my husband, um, loves musicals, but came to them late in life, so he's not a native speaker. Mm. I think it was full immersion. I was a lonely, frizzy-haired, <laughs> four-eyed, thunder-thighed child. And all I really had to do, I didn't have anyone to play with after school. I just had my albums. <laughs> oh, I forgot Pizza Face. There was that, too. There was Acting in the T-Zone. So it was me oh and me and the you know Rodgers and Hammerstein and Hart and Lerner and Lowe and Julie Stein and Compton and Green and all my heroes. Yeah. Oh my gosh. We'll be right back. Hi, I'm Sandra Yancey, founder and CEO of eWomen Network. One of my mottos for business owners is, you can't do it alone. Whether you're in the startup stage of your business or you're scaling, you can't grow without relationships to provide support, wisdom, and new customers. eWomen Network is your home to connect with other women entrepreneurs who have been where you are or are experiencing the same challenges. We have chapters across the U.S. and Canada that have monthly events featuring our trademarked process called Accelerated Networking to ensure you get the contacts, resources, and leads you need to grow your business. And once you become a member, you get many benefits, including two one-on-one coaching sessions, unlimited access to our membership database, your own personal profile page, and discounts on products and services with our business partners, such as UPS and American Express Open. Join the eWomen Network community and let us help you live your dream. For details, visit eWomenNetwork.com. And we're back on the record. Well, Sherry, we're nearing the end, and I I could talk to you all day long. This has been so wonderful. Um, It's been really fun. Yes, but we do have to kind of wrap up, and so I would like to see if you have any final words of wisdom you would like to share with us. Well, gosh, um, um, have fun, (laughs) erase fear, have fun, and um, I guess... I guess the theme that we've been circling is look for that thing that you did for love and uh, do more of that. Well, folks, that wraps up another episode of On the Record. Tune in next week. 